We can pretend to believe in chance and coincidence when things seem to go well, but when tragedy touches your life, everybody looks around for somebody to blame because in the core of their soul, they know that coincidence is a lie. Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the the hall of faith or the great chapter of faith in the Bible because Hebrews chapter 11 is all about men and women whom God prepared with strength of faith that He might use them to do the impossible. It is the story of faith from beginning to end. In fact, found within that 11th chapter of Hebrews is a definition, so to speak, of faith. Faith uh, is believing in things that are unseen and trusting that God is the God who He says He is, that He rewards those who believe in Him. And so the chapter goes on to explain and describe and give examples of Moses and Abraham, Sarah, all these great people of faith from our Scriptures. And because it's a chapter of God doing the impossible things through those who have been given strength of faith, we might find it very surprising that Elijah's name doesn't show up in Hebrews chapter 11 because the story of Elijah from beginning to end is the story of faith that God has instilled and nurtured and taught and given to Elijah. And through that man, God does the impossible again and again. So we might find it surprising that Elijah's name doesn't appear in Hebrews chapter 11, but Elijah does appear, just not by name. From Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, we read these words, women received back their dead by resurrection. So that undoubtedly is a reference to both Elijah and his successor, Elisha, as both of them will raise dead people back to life Obviously, God is doing that through them, but they've been prepared for that by the strength of the faith that has been given them by God and the impossible is accomplished by God as the physically dead are raised back to physical life. That's the story we turn to this morning here in this last passage of chapter 17. This is a well-known story. It's the story of Elijah raising the widow woman's son from death back to life. So but before we begin there, just a quick review, just to refresh our minds and get us thinking into the context of Elijah's story. We began the story uh, with this confrontation between Elijah and this darkest, most evil time in Israel's history when Israel is completely consumed. All of the leadership is consumed with Baal worship. Ahab is the wickedest king ever to rule over Israel. He has married this Baal priestess by the name of Jezebel. And this has cast Israel into the darkest of times. And into this shows shows up Elijah. He proclaims this drought. He proclaims that there will be a drought upon the land because he has read God's word. And in God's word, God has said from Deuteronomy chapter 11, that this land that I'm giving to you is not like Egypt. It's a different land. It will not be watered by irrigation. Instead, I must water it from rain and dew. And I will do that, says God, as long as you do not turn your hearts against me. As your hearts are not taken away with false gods, if you continue to love me, 
I will water the land with rain and dew. Elijah has read this and he knows that Israel is not loving God. They are not serving God. They're serving and loving Baal. And so Elijah concludes, well then, God said, I will bring drought if you turn your hearts from me. So he proclaims this drought, obviously led by God to do so. And by proclaiming this drought, God then says to him, go and hide yourself, not because he's afraid or because Elijah needs to be kept safe from the wrath of of Ahab and Jezebel. But God says to Elijah, absent yourself, take yourself away. And God initiates this famine of the word. The 100 remaining true prophets of Yahweh are put into hiding by Obadiah. Elijah is taken away by God. And so the land of Israel is left wordless from God, without a word from God, without an anointed speaker of God's word, without an anointed teacher, without an anointed preacher. They are experiencing this famine of the word. But while there's, this is going on, Elijah goes down by the brook by the command of God. The ravens are miraculously, supernaturally feeding him. But yet he waits by this drying, ever drying brook as he watches the blessing and the providence of God slowly dry up. And his faith is molded. His faith is grown. His faith is tested. His faith is increased. He's prepared for the next test of faith, which we talked about last week as he's told to go to Zarephath, the very hometown, not only of Jezebel, but that's where Jezebel's father is still king the one whom Elijah has put himself in open frontal opposition to, he goes to their hometown. And God says to him, you'll be provided for by the person least likely to be able to provide for you, a widow. So he goes here and his provider is this widow woman. And he says to her, he gives her this hard, difficult test of faith because God has told Elijah, I've already been working in her heart. I've already commanded her to be your provider. So Elijah tests her, so to speak. And she says, we've got one meal left and then we're going to die. Elijah says, fine, give me a portion of it first. Make make a cake for me first and then you can have what's left over. She obeys because God has been working in her heart and then she becomes Elijah's provider. And we we read uh, last week about the flour, the jar of flour and the jar of oil that will never be exhausted, at least not until the drought is over. And all that brings us to the passage that we look at from verse 17 this morning. So let's read together first, verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 24, starting from 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. He cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. 
And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So as we begin here from verse 17, we come immediately face to face with the issue. And this, the son of the woman, at the mistress of the house, became ill and his illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. So immediately the widow's woman, the widow's son, I'm sorry, dies. There's no extended period of sickness. It just seemingly by the words, it just sort of comes on suddenly, so to speak. Maybe there's a short period of illness. Maybe there's an accident. Maybe there's some type of seizure or some type of drastic illness or poisoning or something of that nature. And he just dies. And we find ourselves face to face once again with the same thing that we've been face to face with since the very first verse of the Elijah story. And that is the problem of death, the looming possibility of death. Every episode has been about the looming possibility, the threat of death. Elijah faces Ahab and Jezebel and calls them down. Will they just strike him dead? They certainly could have. Then Elijah is taken by the brook and there's this looming threat of death as the brook dries. He is fed, but he is not watered, so to speak. So there's this this threat, this possibility of death that God brings him through there as well. Then he's sent to Zarephath. And Zarephath, once again, there's the threat of death because his provider has one meal left. So there's this looming possibility of death. Now the looming possibility of death comes to fruition as the widow's son dies. Next week, we're going to look once again at this whole issue of the looming threat of death as Elijah's life is going to be put on the line as he faces these prophets of Baal, but it's going to result not in his death, but in their death. So in each episode, we see this this contest, so to speak, between death and God who preserves his people through death. So we said last week that one thing that was happening as Elijah goes to Zarephath is God is flaunting his power over the false deities of the land, the false gods of the land. God is thumbing his nose, so to speak, at those who would say, Baal is the god of the rain. God says to them, oh yeah? You say Baal is the god of the rain? Well, let's just see. I'm going to take my drought maker and I'm going to put him in the very heart of Baal country. Now make it rain. So God is flaunting his power over the false god Baal. In this episode, God continues to flaunt his power over the false gods of the land. Only this God is not mentioned by name in the passage. We've talked about him before, though. He's the false God known as Mot, who was known as the God of death. So in the land of Baal, in the areas of Baal worship, Canaanite pagan worship, there were three main gods. Those were Ashtoreth, who was uh, supposedly the mother of Baal, sort of the female version of Baal. There was, of course, Baal who was known as the god of fertility and the god of the storm. So it was Baal who brought the rains, which also brought the fertility of the land. By extension, he also brought the fertility of people. That's how he was seen. That's how he was proclaimed. But then there was also Mot, who was the god of death. We said before that during this uh, the year, the Israelite year, the Palestinian year, there was a dry season and a rainy season. During the dry season, it was thought of that Mot was victorious over Baal. And Baal was dead, that's why it wasn't raining. But then when the rainy season came, that's when Baal prevailed over Mot. And Baal was brought back to life and then it rained again. So last in the last episode, God is displaying 
his supremacy over Baal. And he says to Baal, you think you're the God of the rain. Let me just show you exactly who the God of the rain is. In this episode, God is saying to Mott, you think you're the God of life and death. Well, let me just show you who the real God of life and death is. So immediately we begin in the passage being faced with this issue of death. After this, now there's that same phrase again. Might be in your translation translated, and it came to pass. We know once again that all things that happen, happen by the sovereign will of God. But sometimes we find in our scriptures this phrase that tells us, be especially aware that what follows is something that God particularly wants to bring to pass. Nothing happens without God either bringing it to pass or allowing it to happen. We know that. But sometimes God is especially desirous of something happening. And the scriptures often alert us to that by this phrase, and it came to pass. So we see once again that the death here of the widow's son isn't just something that happened. It was something that God specifically desires to bring about. So God desires it. And it came to pass that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So he becomes ill. We're not told about the illness. We're not told anything else about him other than his passing seems to be rather sudden, rather quick. Now verse 18. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. So let's pause right here in verse 18 for a little bit and let's consider the the widow's reaction to this most horrible of tragedies that God has brought into her life. So first of all, she says to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. The first thing that we see is that Elijah has done nothing but to trust and obey God. And what has it gotten him? He's now being blamed for something that he didn't do. He couldn't have brought about the death of the boy unless he raised a knife and killed him himself or something like that. But Elijah could not even have done this if he wanted to. He's done nothing but trust God and obey God immediately whenever God gives him a command. And what has that gotten for Elijah? It's gotten him false accusations. It's gotten him blame for something that wasn't his fault. Does this sound familiar? That as we trust and obey God, stop expecting the world to just take note and say, blessed are you to obey your God in such a way. Trusting and obeying the Lord our God more often than not just brings us trouble in this world. It brings us blame for what we're not to be blamed for, for things that we're not responsible for. We're just blamed for what's not ours. So Elijah finds himself being blamed for what is not his. We're reminded here of Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus says that you are blessed when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Then Jesus goes on to say, and they did the same thing to the prophets, whom Elijah, as we've said before, is the first true, a real true prophet. So Elijah is blamed for what is not Something to blame for him. She blames him for his death. She knows that his death, instinctively, she knows that his death is not a coincidence. And so she does what all fallen people do. 
when tragedy and disappointment touch your life, all of us look around for where to place the blame. Have you ever noticed that? That somehow instinctively at the core of our soul, whether we are a believer in God or not, whether we are His child or not, all people instinctively know that there is no such thing as coincidence. That there is no such thing as chance. And the reason that we know that all people know this is because we can pretend to believe in chance and coincidence when things seem to go well. But when tragedy touches your life, everybody looks around for somebody to blame. Because in the core of their soul, they know that coincidence is a lie. That everything is caused by something. That is a mark of the image of God upon us. That we instinctively know that what happens in this world has been brought about by a cause. And so when great disappointment touches us, when loss touches us, when tragedy touches our life, the first thing that everybody's going to do is look around for somebody in their life to blame for it. Now, oftentimes, the person that we find to blame is the closest one. You ever find that to be true? The person who's just closest. Closest relationally. Maybe even the one who not only was not to blame, but was actually helping. Elijah was here to help. The widow and her son were alive because God was sustaining them through Elijah. And yet, the woman places blame at his feet. Does that ever happen to you? Some sort of great disappointment touches your life and you look for someone in your life to blame and you end up blaming not only the one who is in a relationship uh, manner of speaking closest to you, but also the one who maybe was helping. Not only is, is not to blame for this, but was to or should be given credit for helping in the situation. But that's our nature. That's fallen nature because God has placed in our hearts an understanding that chance, fate, destiny, all those things are made up concepts that human beings have created in order to explain the divine workings in our world. And so we know, the widow knows that when this happens to her, somebody has brought this to be. So she looks around, the first person she sees is Elijah and she places the blame on him. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.